Well, good morning, church. It is truly wonderful, truly wonderful to be with you in person. I have only preached at GCBC via Zoom so far. Um, and the last time I was set to preach in person was October of 2020. Then that week we entered our eternal lockdown. Uh, so I find it very fitting that I get to be the one preaching on Sunday, the day that it opens back up. It's almost like the last five and a half months didn't happen. Um, so I'm just going to re-preach my sermon from October. That's cool. I'm joking. Of course, we're going to continue where we left off in Romans, just as Dara read. And if you've been following, uh, and remember from two weeks ago, Jason said, Romans chapters 9 through 11 are to be taken together as the response to the question concerning Israel's unbelief. That is, has the word of God failed? This is a question that is of tremendous personal importance to Paul, and it's of tremendous importance to you and I today. This isn't just intellectual ponderings, right? As Jason said, people's reputations matter. Their past dependability affects how we trust them in their ongoing dependability. If God's word wasn't dependable in the past, how can we trust it to be dependable for us today? And this morning, I'm going to set us up with another illustration as we look at Paul's continuation of his argument. I wonder if any one of you has ever had to have major surgery of any kind. Or, like myself, maybe you haven't, but you can imagine yourself in that position. And the surgery I'm thinking of, um, it's not even major, but it's a delicate procedure. LASIK eye surgery. Now, my DNA has failed me in terms of hair loss, but my eyesight is still 20-20, so I haven't had to worry about it. But I always notice the ads. They always start with the problem, and then they give you the promise. It's always like, are you tired of those pesky Coke bottle glasses and irritating contacts? Well, after one quick surgery, you can have your eyesight completely restored. Fantastic. And then it always follows with something like this. So come to this clinic where Dr. So-and-so has been performing this procedure for over 10 years with 10,000 successful surgeries. Why do they add that? Because nobody wants somebody shooting lasers into their eyes that doesn't know what they're doing, right? It doesn't matter what the surgery is, before you go under the laser or knife, you want to know that doctor's CV, and you want to know his success rate. Because what if you heard that this, while this doctor has had many successful procedures, there's also been a large group of people that have left his office completely blind? you would need to know, was it the doctor's fault or was it somehow the patient's fault? You would want to know what exactly went wrong with these other patients because the ultimate question that you are asking is, can I trust this doctor to restore my eyesight? Or will I end up like these other patients, blind? And we see the same thing unfold in Romans. We see the problem that we are sinners before a holy God and deserve wrath. And then we get the solution, the promise, that God has made a way to be right with him through belief in Jesus. 
And now, Paul says, we need to address this group that should have believed, but aren't. And this group isn't just some group. (laughs) These are God's people, his precious Israel. His word to them has been a promise of salvation. But now as Paul looks around the church, it's, it's mostly Gentiles, right? So has God's word, his promise of salvation, failed? Because again, this is, this is why this matters to us. And so what I want us to wrestle with and try to answer this morning, can God's promise to save us be trusted? And if so, how? So let's pray one more time and hear from God. Well, Father, we, we just rejoice in the fact that we can be gathered together. This is what you delight in and call your people to do, and so we, we just praise you for that. And your word tells us that where two or more are gathered in your name, there you are among us. So we trust that, that you are here um, with a, a special presence. So we pray, God, that you would, uh, you would send your Holy Spirit to help me to speak your word, to give us ears to listen and hearts to respond. So we, just, we trust you with this. <laughs> we depend on you with this. So please speak. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, Pastor Jason gave us an illustration of a walled garden filled with all those who will come to trust in Jesus for their salvation. And from God's perspective, from inside the garden, there's a sign that reads, all those who enter do so by God's free, sovereign choice. And on the outside of the garden, the same sign reads, all those who enter do so by trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Both of those realities are true. So far in his argument, where Paul deals with the problem of Israel's unbelief, he has only dealt with it from the vantage point from inside the garden. Okay, so from God's free sovereign choice. So when asking the question, has the word of God failed, Paul showed us that no. Because these, these promises were never for all of Israel as a nation. They were for the Israel within Israel, the elect remnant people that God alone has secured for salvation. So while he's answered it from the lofty, heavenly heights, now he comes down to human ground level. That even though the Bible tells us that God is completely sovereign, it also tells us that we make real-time decisions that we are held up accountable for. So Paul now zeroes in on Israel's hearts from ground level and asks, what happened? Where did the rest of Israel go wrong? And he starts us off, as we should be used to by now, with another one of his rhetorical questions. Verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? So again, Paul looks out at the followers of Jesus, and he sees a church filled with mostly Gentiles and only some Jews, and Paul knows that that is completely 
upside down to how we think it should be. Are you saying, Paul, that these, these non-Israelites who weren't even trying to be right with God are? But that these Israelites who were trying to be right with God aren't? Yeah. And there are two questions that he raises with asking this. One, is that just? Like, is that right of God that it worked out that way? There's something in us when we hear that says, well, that doesn't seem fair. I mean, shouldn't the people that were at least trying deserve salvation more than the people that weren't? Let's put a pin in that, because we can answer that a little better later in the text. And the second question, how did that happen? Like, what difference was there in the Gentiles' hearts versus the Israelites' hearts that it happened this way? Well, let's look again at how he asked the question and know that when he says righteousness, he means a right standing with God here. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued what? You would think that he would follow suit and say righteousness here, like he did for the Gentiles. But he doesn't. Notice, he says, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that righteousness. You see the difference? So you have, you have one group that didn't pursue a right standing with God. But when the invitation came to receive it as a gift, they accepted it and received it. And then you have another group that pursued a law that would earn them righteousness but they weren't able to attain it. Why? Verse 32, because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So instead of pursuing a right standing with God that comes from receiving it as an undeserved gift from Jesus, they pursued it as if it could be accomplished through works or through their own efforts and obedience. But as we've seen all through Romans, we are not able to achieve right standing with God through works. The law demands perfection, and none outside of Jesus can or have achieved it. But here's the thing. Israel wasn't ignorant of this message. The same gospel, the same good news of salvation as a gift was preached to them just as it was to the Gentiles, right? So why didn't Israel receive it with joy like the Gentiles did? Why does it seem as though they were more resistant to the gospel? Paul says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then he quotes from Isaiah, a prophecy about Jesus. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, why does the Bible talk about the coming Savior of sinners, Jesus, as a stumbling stone and rock of offense? Like, why do people stumble over Jesus? Well, I think because faith in him 
requires that we declare spiritual bankruptcy. He demands that we humble ourselves before him, confess our complete need for him before we can be raised up with him. And the more one thinks that they have spiritual currency to offer, the harder it is to declare spiritual bankruptcy. We can see this with real money. Let's say there was a king, and he informed two people in his kingdom that they owed tremendous debts to the kingdom, and it was time to pay. But he made them an offer. If you declare, spirit, or if you declare bankruptcy to me, I will forgive all your debts, and I'll actually take from my personal storehouses and give you all that you need and more. Now let's say the first person was dirt poor, had nothing to his name. He would hear this offer and receive it with joy. Yes, I'll take that offer. I have only to gain. But let's say the other man had an appearance of wealth. It was all borrowed, of course, but he had a house and land and social status and a business and fancy clothes. Now when he hears the offer, he has hesitancy. Bankruptcy? I can't do that. Surely I can use my wealth and my status to pay off part of my debt. I refuse to declare bankruptcy after everything I've built. Or think of the Beatitudes in the Gospels where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are you who weep. It's not particularly good to be any of those things, right? I don't want to be poor, hungry, and sad. He says that because those are the kinds of people who are more likely to see their need for Jesus and cry out to him. It's easier for them to declare spiritual bankruptcy to God and to the world and embrace salvation as a gift. Now let's remember, this isn't just intellectual discussion for Paul. He's emotionally involved. And he says here in verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now, it's personal because, because he's one of them, right? These, these, were his, these were his people. But now he gives us another reason. Why is his heart so engaged as he prays for them? For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. It might be easy to read this at first glance and to think, okay, well, zeal must not be all that important or all that necessary. And what's really necessary is knowledge. But we'd be wrong to do that. On the contrary, Paul says this because he's, he's trying to give credit where credit is due. His heart breaks for Israel because these Israelites have a zeal for God. And a genuine zeal for God, a passionate love for God, is foundational for salvation. Revelation 3.16, So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Or Matthew 10.37, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And that's a zealous kind of love. 
he demands. And I'm sure Paul's looking around at the non-Jewish world and sees a people zealous for all kinds of things. Wealth, kingdom, art, sport, family, but a zeal for Yahweh surely isn't one of them. And I want us to hear this this morning because I think we can be really lacking in this as God's people sometimes. Sometimes I talk to Christians about God and it's like we're talking about taxes. And then Netflix comes up in the conversation and that's when their faces light up. Listen, we cannot overdo our zeal for God. He is a God of infinite beauty, beauty, majesty, and splendor, and we will never outmatch that in our zeal. The Israelites' problem wasn't zeal. It was what? A zeal that didn't accord with knowledge. It was an ignorant zeal. It was a wrongfully placed zeal. And a zeal that doesn't accord with knowledge, a wrongfully placed zeal, is worthless. And worse than that, it can be deadly. This should be sobering to us because one can have zeal and still not be saved. So what was this knowledge that they missed? Verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, parentheses, that is, God's righteousness revealed through Jesus, right standing with the holy God given as a gift, not having earned it in any way ourselves, okay? For being ignorant of that righteousness and instead seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. All right, so because they sought to make themselves right before a holy God through self-righteous means, they did not submit to God's righteousness freely given as an undeserved gift. Now, it's interesting that he says submit here. He could have said that a few different ways. In seeking to establish their own, they did not believe in God's righteousness, for example. Like, why the word submit? Well, again, I think it takes a humbling, almost humiliating submission to declare spiritual bankruptcy and receive righteousness as a gift. In their case... The spiritual currency they thought they had kept them from submitting to righteousness as a gift. This is all the more true when you not only think that you have it, but you're seen by others as someone that has it. It's a humbling submission to say, I had it wrong. I still need saving. And I need it as a gift. Now, Paul can say all of that is true because of this next verse. Okay, so what was the true knowledge that they missed? Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Because Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. Now, if that isn't clear, uh, I don't blame you. Uh, Stick with me here. The word end, we can define two ways, and the same is true in the Greek. Either Christ is the end of the law, as in the completion or fulfillment of the law, 
Or it can mean Christ is the end of the law, as in Christ is the goal of the law. He's the purpose of the law. And I think Paul has both in mind here, because the one necessitates the other. Really quick illustration would be runners running in a race, right, where the finish line is both the goal of the race and the end of the race. But that doesn't really get to the heart of the context here, so I'm going to give you another illustration. When Sarah and I were dating, I left for a semester abroad to study in Israel. And before I left, I proposed to her and left her all these little notes hidden in her house uh, for her to find so that she can remember my love for her while I was away. And before you say, man, that's romantic, just know that I left her with all of the wedding planning to do by doing that. Um, so yeah, as she searched for these notes and read them, right, that was reminding her of my return, of my love to come. But what if, when I finally came back, hoping to be received with joy, um, as we finally see each other and embrace, what if she said, who are you? Don't, don't bother me. I have a, a fiancé, and he wants me to read these hidden letters. And if I don't find them all, he won't love me and marry me. So <laughs> leave me alone. Well, that would be ridiculous and tragic. The whole point or goal of these notes was to encourage her until I returned, right? The goal was our relationship. And when I returned, that should have meant the completion of the letter hunt. It didn't matter anymore. But in this fake illustration, she misses the point, right? as if finding the letters was a matter of works, as if her relationship with me depended on that. And in the same way, when, when we look at the law, the whole purpose of the law, the whole goal of the law is Jesus. It all pointed to him. The goal of it was a relationship with him that comes from believing in his righteousness. And when the fullness of time came for him to come to his people, it also meant the fulfillment of the law. Okay, so it wasn't that Israel was just loving God too much in the wrong way to some minor degree. It was that they missed the very heart of God. They missed Jesus. So what, what happened with Israel? What happened with these patients of the doctor that left blind? They missed Jesus. They, they missed the point and goal of what God had revealed to them in his word. Now remember that, that pin that we had in earlier in the text. Is it somehow unjust of God that it worked out this way? Was it unfair that his people who zealously pursued righteousness were the ones that missed it? No. Because the way of salvation... The way to right standing with God was always there. Jesus was the goal of the law from the beginning, so they don't have an excuse. It wasn't as though God tricked them, right? He isn't Loki, God of mischief. It wasn't like the Old Testament was right standing with God through the law, and then Jesus came and, whoop, tricked you, 
It's actually faith in Jesus that saves. Right? No, it was always about him. Salvation through a simple faith in God who provides right standing with him, looking to the Messiah. And to further make that point, Paul then shows us this from the Old Testament, from the very heart of the law. And we don't have time to fully dive into it this morning, but he quotes from two texts, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, because they are the epitome of the law. And he is essentially saying, even here we see grace at work. So Paul takes that and applies it with a a post-cross lens and says, Moses was right. We don't have to ascend into heaven because Jesus, God himself, descended down to us. And we don't have to descend into the abyss to pay for our sins because Jesus descended into death and paid for our sins for us. Just as Moses believed in the foreshadowing of Jesus, and so did many of God's people through Israel's history, right? still many more missed it and pursued a self-righteous religion. But that misses God's heart. God didn't, for example, command sacrifice because he delights in the work of it, as if he just likes the smell of burnt animals. Oh, the aroma of burnt goat in the morning. No, he, he delights when his people see their need for him and look to him in faith as the God who forgives sin, who makes a way of salvation for them through his provision. All of that looking to, hoping in the one lamb to come. Okay, it's the same God with the same heart and the same way to be right with him believing in him to undeservedly make us right with him. And here it is, now that God has revealed it in full through Jesus, verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. is such, such, such good news. Or rather, the good news. You want to be made right with God? Simply confess and believe in Jesus and what he's done for you and you will be saved. Now, Because this is the defining truth of what we need to be right with God, let's make sure we understand this correctly. He calls us all to be students of his words. Let's let's think about this, okay? Because there's a way to cheapen this. Does this mean that everyone who professes that Jesus is Lord and all that who acknowledge the historical fact that he rose from the dead are saved? What about Satan? Is he saved? All throughout the Gospels, we see demons confess that Jesus is Lord. What have you come to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And surely Satan believes the resurrection happened because it destroyed the power of death from under him. 
this can't mean mere mental acknowledgement of these facts. When the Bible talks about believing, we have to rightly understand all that it means. Let me use another illustration. If I threw a flotation device, right, a life raft, into this room, and I asked you if you believed it would save your life, you might believe that's true. But your, your belief would be mental, it'd be theoretical, right? You would all remain in your, seated with, in your seats with your masks on. Um, nobody would move, right? Now let's say you were in the middle of the freezing Atlantic. No boats in sight, waves crashing over you, fighting to keep your head above the water, and now I throw you a life raft. And I ask, do you believe this will save you? What do you say? Or rather, what would you do? You would, you would grab a hold of it with everything you've got, and you would cry out to the person on the other line, and you would say, pull me in. Yes, I believe. In its right context, to believe in a life raft is to, by definition, grab hold of it and depend on it for salvation. And so it is with Jesus. To believe in Jesus, to truly trust in Jesus, is by definition to wholeheartedly, in the core of your whole being, believe in all that he is and said and did. To confess that he is Lord is to submit to him as Lord. And in all the truth of all of what he said, he is, right? That he is God, that he is Messiah, that he's King of Kings, that he's supreme ruler of the universe that we now bow down to in worship. To believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead means that you're, you're believing of, in all of why he did that, Right? That he, that he came to earth to save us from our sin because we are sinners that need it. That he lived the perfectly righteous life because we couldn't. That he fully paid for that sin on the cross because we deserved it. And then he sealed it by being raised from the dead because we couldn't. To believe in him is to grab hold of him with your whole being, letting go of any other way of salvation and trusting him wholeheartedly for the forgiveness of your sins. We can't take this cheaply. Nor the next verse, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Okay, listen, that's not a, it's not a recipe for a magic formula that grants you access to God's kingdom. As if we can form an assembly line here and everyone that comes through you believe in the resurrection? Yep. Great. All right, you confess Jesus as Lord? Yep. Awesome. Here's your golden ticket. Right, that, that makes faith an act of works that we do in our power and in our control, and that's, that's no different than the law. Now, I say all of that without wanting to overcomplicate this. I don't want to muddy the waters, Right? I say it because I know there are people, just like was true for me, that will assume they are right with God simply because they have a mental acknowledgement of who he is. And that's not saving faith. Just as Jesus said in Matthew 7, not all who say to me, 
Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say to them on that day, I never knew you. Okay, I, I say that because I, I want us to get this right so that I can rightly exalt the flip side of the coin. So now that I said that, let me emphasize the other side. This good news, this gospel is amazing precisely because it is this simple. Because when you are in the spiritual Atlantic Ocean, seeing your condition before a holy God, desperate to be made right with him, you need a simple gospel. And make no mistake, this is simple. Remember the other sinner hanging on the cross next to Jesus? What did he do to be saved? He confessed that he was a sinner, justly getting what he deserved, while Jesus had done nothing wrong. And he believed in his heart when he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's it. And how did Jesus respond to this simple faith? He said, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's the simple gospel. And this simple gospel is the same one revealed in the Old Testament, which is why Paul then continues, quoting from Isaiah, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Notice the universality here. This salvation through the simple gospel is for everyone who believes in him. There is no separate way of salvation for the Jew or for the Greek or for those in Rome or India, or Asia, or the Americas, or any tribe, nation, gender, social status, political leanings, no matter your history, no matter how messy your life is, no matter how too far gone you feel that you are, the same simple gospel is available for you today. Because the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who simply call on him. Man, I needed, I needed to meditate on this last verse this week. Because as I mulled it over, God so encouraged me as he reminded me of the moment of my spiritual infancy. Kneeling on my bedroom floor in my final year of secondary school, still not comprehending the whole gospel and what Jesus had done for me, and yet still in my heart knowing that I wasn't fully right with him, but that if I simply cry out to him, if I simply call on him, I know he can save me. And so I did, calling on him. Jesus, take my life. I, I know I'm not right with you but I know, I know you can do it. So just take my whole life, take my future, take everything. I just, I want to be yours. The simple gospel produced life in me because 
It was the Spirit at work, both to reveal it to me and empower me to believe it. And that's what gives us confidence in the simple gospel. It works because it's God's work. It saves because it's God who saves. We have to understand this in light of what we saw in Romans 8 and 9, right? We are secured in our salvation because God has sovereignly called us, elected us, empowered us, secured us to believe. And what does that look like from our perspective? Genuine belief in the simple gospel. So, taking it back to our doctor's analogy, how do we not end up as blind patients? Genuinely, wholeheartedly call on Jesus and believe in his simple gospel. And he's not like the doctors here where I, I need to sit in queue for months until he's ready, nor do I need to, to try to fix myself up and look presentable before I go to his office. He will meet you right now, just as you are in this church or in your living room. Cry out to him, and he will give you sight and life. Can I trust this doctor to save me? Yes, 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 yes. Because for the genuine believers in his simple gospel, his promises will never fail. God's promise of salvation can be trusted because he will always save all his elect. That is, all those who genuinely call on him to be saved. For, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So as I close, we want to ask, what does God, through his spirit, want us to take away from his word this morning? I'm going to give us four. Number one, this should cause us to assess our hearts. When the Bible gives us texts like, like this, it's easy to say, man, how did Israel miss it? But it's, it's, it's meant, right, as well, to cause us to ask ourselves, have I missed it? Is my faith the genuine faith in the simple gospel for a relationship with Jesus? Or have I somehow fused the simple gospel together with my church attendance record? Fused it with my life of being a pretty good person? Together with what I've accomplished for the kingdom? And if it is the latter, right, it's, not, it's not too late. Now's the time to confess and believe in Jesus alone. Number two, I think God wants to instill in us, inject in us, a renewed confidence in his promise to save through the simple gospel, both for you and for those that we seek to share the gospel with. And not just to save, and then it's up to us after that, but that, as we see in his promise here, that we will be saved, that he will save us to the end, that you would leave with a deepened confidence in God as the keeper of promises, not 
because you are a really good Christian, but because you are his in Christ through belief in the simple gospel. Okay? Because all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. Number three, I think God would want to encourage us to be a people that thinks through and wrestles with his word. We've been wading through some pretty deep theological waters lately. Don't run from that. An inexhaustibly holy God should confuse and rattle us sometimes, right? We should expect that. So I would, I would encourage you, please, don't be content with, with leaning on easy answers and not wrestling, okay? Because when trials come, God wants the roots of your trust in him to run deep. I recently sowed some grass in my garden, and I love my little grass seedlings. But the time has come for me this week to mow it for the first time. I have to cut the blade, even though it hurts my little seedlings, so that they begin to grow deep roots because they need it to get through Irish weather. Number four. I think God would have us learn from Paul's heart towards Israel. Even though Paul very clearly holds in view a completely sovereign God that does not lead to a lethargic heart for those who don't know him. What's he say? My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And I know I just, I left convicted this week. Convicted to earnestly, passionately, emotionally pray more for the lost in my life. Having a robust view of God's sovereignty should never leave us with dry, heartless prayers. No. It should lead us to cry out to him all the more, knowing that it's only him who can do it, and that he has elected us both to pray for them and preach to them to that end. So on that note, let's pray to him now together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for a simple gospel, a simple word of salvation through Jesus. to simply call on him, cry out to him, confessing and believing in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So we think right now, God, we think about those who may not know you yet and we, we just cry out for them. From our heart, we pray for them, God that you would go now in power to reveal yourself to them. We pray for anyone hearing this that, might, that may not know you, that your spirit would move in power now to show yourself to them, empower them to believe genuinely in you for the forgiveness of their sins. And we just thank you, God, for your word. We know that you are a God who speaks, and when you speak, it has power. So we pray, God, that your word, um, 
that we would receive it. And now it would empower us to believe it and walk with it. So we thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for how you've revealed yourself. Um, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.